electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza in San Francisco with Carl Quintanilla in New York. John Ford has the morning off. Today, two bellwethers of the tech ecosystem with warnings for what may lie ahead. Meta and Micron shares under pressure. Two bellwethers of the ecosystem. Uh, Meta and Micron shares, those guys are under pressure. As I just said, Q4 guidance for the chipmaker was dismal. CEO Sanjay Moroda saying the company is still searching for normalcy in demand. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg He painted a bleak picture as well. Leaked audio obtained by Reuters has Zuck saying, quote, this might be one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history. But that is not stopping one firm from naming the stock a pick. This hour, we will break down what the second half will bring for tech, discuss potential buying opportunities as volatility remains top of mind for investors. And Carl, it is a new quarter, a new half of the year. The markets under pressure with the Nasdaq down about six tenths of a percent. That Micron call, very important. I think the question now is, will a slump in demand fuel an industry gut? glut? Uh, certainly a, a new topic of debate for the market. We're going to start, though, with Meta's warning to investors in this rare bit of macro commentary from Zuckerberg. Let's look to Julia Borston. Hey, Julia. Carl, that's right. Zuckerberg giving that dramatic warning, saying this might be one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history, that according to a Reuters report. And this all happened in a weekly Q&A when he told employees that the company has to cut its engineer hiring target for the year to about six to 7,000, down from 10,000. Zuckerberg also reportedly saying that they are, quote, turning up the heat to weed out employees who don't meet aggressive goals, saying, quote, realistically, there are probably a bunch of people at the company who shouldn't be here. Also yesterday, Chief Product Officer Chris Cox telling workers in a memo that Meta must, quote, prioritize more ruthlessly and, quote, operate leaner, meaner, better executive teams. The company telling us that this was a, quote, internal strategy memo intended to build on what we've already said publicly in earnings about the challenges we face and the opportunities we have. While Zuckerberg and Cox reveal a company rushing to cut costs in a challenging environment, two analysts released bullish notes on Meta today. Bank of America listing Meta as one of its top 10 U.S. ideas for Q3 with a buy rating and a $233 price target, citing near-term potential for accelerating growth on the opportunity to make money from reels and e-commerce and to make progress on ad targeting challenges. Truest saying Meta likely to dethrone TikTok as king of short form video within 18 months, forecasting $8 billion in global revenue for Reels this year, up from $1.2 billion from Reels last year. So the looming question is how much Meta's roughly 10 million advertisers, many of which are small businesses, will pull back on spending in this new economic environment? Guys? Uh, Julia, two questions. One is uh, that this was an employee Q&A that Reuters uh, got to listen to. And I wonder if you think it sets the table for some kind of pre-announcement before earnings. The second is uh, other 
anecdotal episodes about advertising, for example, uh, and the television up front, appear pretty strong. Would that build more of a bull case behind uh, Facebook's back half of the year? Well, a lot of questions in there, Carl. Just to back up, I would say I, I don't think this necessarily means we're going to get a pre-announcement for earnings. Earnings are coming up pretty soon within the next month. And all these comments that Zuckerberg has made, made are, are basically more granular versions of what they warned about in their last earnings call. So they warned that they were going to be putting a pause on hiring, that they were going to be much more cautious. Now they just seem a little bit more aggressive in how they're communicate, communicating that to employees. So I think it's just more detail and we'll certainly get more in earnings, but I don't think necessarily means that we'll get anything before then. In terms of advertising, the TV advertisers have a very different scenario right now than Meta and it, it, it sort of similar companies do. What's interesting is we, you know, we heard NBC Universal, CNBC's parent company, closed its upfront record uh, amount of money brought in in the upfront um, over the $7 billion brought in last year at pricing increases. I think what that indicates is that the TV industry and NBC Universal have made a lot of progress towards better targeting, better measurement of the impact of their ads. And they're in effect, we're seeing the media companies become more like tech companies in their ability to give data to brands. On the other hand, you have companies such as Meta that are struggling with targeting in a way that they didn't four or five years ago. And that's because of the changes that Apple has made uh, with its operating system. So Meta is making progress um, in, in targeting, and they've talked about how they are making incremental mm -hmm. progress, but they basically had to change the way they target ads and measure their impact right. because of those changes that Apple has made. So they're in a very different situation yeah. right now, but I think, of course, the, the backdrop of all this is these macroeconomic questions, Dee. They sure are. Julia, thank you very much. We're going to bring in software investor and Bessemer Ventures partner Elliot Robinson. Elliot, what's your take on some of the commentary? Two major tech companies over the last 24 hours really expressing quite a bit of caution. Yeah, as you guys talked about, volatility in the second half of the year, potential pullback, that's the name of the game. But different from you know business models like Meta, what we track uh, at the firm is the Bessemer Emerging Cloud Index. These are companies not relying on you know, an advertising model, but really recurring revenues from a B2B business model. Compared to the NASDAQ, which is down about 30% year to date, and the S&P, which is down about 20% year to date, the Bessemer Emerging Cloud Index is down about 43% year to date. Um, but with that said, we did have some breaks in the clouds last week, a brief bounce back, starting with companies like Confluent, Samsara, Domo, they all saw their stock prices move in a positive direction anywhere between 20 and 30% in the last seven trading days. So taking a closer look at cloud valuations, the top 10 performing cloud companies are garnering a 16X valuation multiple. Well, the average emerging cloud index company is somewhere around seven and a half times. So the most important insight here, given the conversation, is that the market's continued bifurcation for cloud company performance. So today, different from the last two years, sustained growth with a clear pathway to profitability and ultimately, positive free cash flow generation is the profile that the market's rewarding and investors are looking for. So, Elliot, you're kind of the perfect person to weigh in on a discussion that we've been having this week, and that is the role of data center REITs, which is Jim Chanos's latest short. The Bessemer Cloud Index, as you've been talking about, looks at all of these cloud and software companies outside of the big three hyperscalers. So what do you think? Do you think that the future value is going to accrue to the big guys, the hyperscalers, um, and not necessarily the brick-and-mortar legacy centers that serve, um, they, they all kind of serve the smaller guys. But what do you think is the outcome for this industry? 
Yeah, I've been following that back and forth that you guys have been having for the last couple of days. And I think in my opinion, and I would say in the firm's opinion, it really is going to accrue to the, uh, the cloud providers that have the best technology, the best support, and the best services. If you look at Azure, for example, you know, that, that first mover advantage that micro, or that uh, that Amazon had for a number of years, that's all but gone. The Azure and its supporting services business unit has grown 43% year over year in its last earnings report. And its market share shifted all the way down from 15% about, uh, about two years ago, all the way up to 23%. So there's only a couple of years before Azure is going to overtake uh, AWS. So when you look at the, the more legacy cloud providers, that infrastructure, those REITs, that value is going to accrue over to uh, Azure, AWS, uh, Google Cloud Services, it's just a natural maturation for the biggest, most important uh, tech players in the space. Hey, Elliot, you know, B of A's talking about Meta this morning, and they say that a CapEx cut at Meta, uh, quote, would easily be the most negative single data point for semis networking data centers, far worse than Micron's inventory comment, although they point out that their guidance on their spending as they work their way toward an, a new era of the metaverse wouldn't imply that. I guess, how much risk do you see embedded in that? Yeah, I mean, for us, we, we really try to think a little bit higher and, and look at what are the bellwether companies in the cloud market and what are they doing today? Companies like Salesforce, ServiceNow, we talked about Azure and AWS. To date, all of those companies continue to perform. You know, Amy Hood, the CFO of Microsoft, she was recently talking about, you know, everything from inflationary pressure or an exchange rate pressure. But what she didn't talk about was that the underpinnings of the cloud market and their customers, they, those haven't pulled back yet. So again, the, the bellwethers, the underpinnings of the cloud market, those are still uh, holding strong. So for us, as we look two quarters ahead in the second half of the year, we still think there's a lot of room for sustained growth in those market segments. So Elliot, I wonder where does that leave Alphabet? Obviously it's business still largely reliant on advertising sales, digital advertising sales, but um, has put a lot of money into the cloud, not yet profitable. Do you think that it's gonna face the same kind of pressures as some of the other ad players? Yeah, I mean, totally different business models as we talked about. GCP is now kind of positioned itself as the number three player in the public cloud market. So generally while the bellwether is still selling us the second half of the year is gonna be uh, pretty solid. Being the number three in that market isn't necessarily the position I would want to be in. So if your advertising business is already under some pressure or, or moving into a more pressure-filled environment and your core kind of B2B cloud business is the number three player in the market today, mm -hmm. I would probably be a little concerned about what the second mm -hmm. half of the year looks like going into 23. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, a lot of the streets still very positive on Alphabet. Um, we should note as well a distant number three in cloud market share. Elliot, thank you very much for being with us today. Elliot Robinson. Thank you, guys. Turning to Micron this morning, stocks under more pressure today thanks to that weak outlook. Slowing consumer demand for PCs, slower demand for smartphones, obviously the main concern today. Uh, joining us this morning, Needham's uh, Rajvinda Gill, who cut his target on Micron and lowered estimates across mobile and PC suppliers. Raj, it's great to have you at 50, 52, actually closer to 51 uh, this morning and 40 cents, nearly cut in half since January. Was there, I mean, they, they telegraphed that this thing directionally was weakening. Were there real surprises today? I think the, the magnitude of the guy down was pretty extreme. Um, they missed the top line by, by 20% for the August guide, and that translated to about a 35% drop in the earnings. 
And, and so the magnitude was a little bit more extreme than we thought. We had cut estimates for a lot of our mobile and PC chip suppliers the prior week. We were expecting maybe a 10% cut. Um, so they came in about 20% or more. Um, and I think the second thing that was surprising was, I guess, the, the abrupt nature of, of, of the, the order cuts from a lot of Micron's uh, smartphone and PC customers. Um, it was a fairly abrupt cut versus, say, three months ago. Um, the industry has seen these abrupt cuts before, though. I mean, we saw this um, during the trade war with, um, with China, which, which started in late 2018 and carried into 2019. That impacted the semiconductor industry uh, pretty significantly. So we saw a pretty big inventory uh, cut at that point. We saw it during COVID. Um, the industry ultimately rebounded and was resilient. Um, but uh, I would say that the, you know, the main issue really for Micron, I think we have to be kind of make a distinction here, is that the, the, the China business, which is about a third of their revenue, declined 30% year over year. And so that had a major impact on, on overall demand. So this was very much a China issue. Um, the economy of China is, is still pretty weak. Uh, we didn't get a sense from, from talking to management that the China economy is going to improve anytime soon. And that's kind of spreading beyond smartphones and PCs into maybe cloud spending in China. On the positive side, um, uh, data center business for them grew 50% year over year. Auto grew, industrial grew, networking grew. And they're fairly positive about you know, those trends going forward. Uh, and so with, uh, with the stock trading at you know, roughly one time, 1.2, 1.3 book value, we feel, a, a, you know, some of the downside or a lot of the downside is starting to get priced into the shares. Right. I'm glad you brought up data centers. Uh, they did say uh, we're seeing some enterprise OEMs wanting to pare back their memory and storage. Obviously, compared to their comments on PCs and phones, uh, it's much more bright. But uh, do you worry about the tone of, of their commentary on data centers? They made kind of a distinction what was happening within data center. So cloud uh, hyperscaler spending. So hyperscaler spending, CapEx spending from folks like Meta, Google, Amazon, Microsoft. Uh, those trends are still robust. The end markets are robust. They are deploying artificial intelligence systems to compete with, with companies like TikTok. So there's a, a lot of advanced uh, artificial intelligence built into these systems. That requires a lot of memory. That's a secular kind of technological trend that's not really going to slow down. Where they saw some softness on the, within the data center was small, medium-sized businesses who, could, who didn't have access to supply. Uh, they're having tr still trouble getting specific components like uh, NIT cards. And so the small, medium-sized business, because of their scale, um, couldn't deploy some of those servers. And so there was some softness there. Um, but the trends still are fairly strong um, in, in, in data center, as well as in auto and industrial. Uh, these are still pretty strong technological right. trends. But Rajvendra, uh, still much of its business comes from PCs and smartphones. And Sanjay Morota was quite pessimistic on the outlook for those uh, sectors. And I guess the key question is that, will this slump in demand fuel an industry-wide gut with Micron being a big player? How much are you looking to Samsung and that possibility of a glut? It, it definitely you know, raises questions of a, of a potential inventory glut. Again, I think where we're seeing the inventory glut is primarily in PCs, smartphones, and consumer electronics. So in the PC, in the smartphone market, 
um, the, they're expecting the market to be down mid single digits. Um, they're expecting it before at the start of the year to be up. So that translates to 130 million unit reduction in smartphones that they initially thought was going to happen at the beginning of the year. And there's about a 30 million unit reduction in PCs. Um, smartphone and PCs are still, you know, 50% of memory. And so memory industry, Micron specifically, is maybe more disproportionately affected than say other semiconductor companies that are exposed to, to data center, high, high performance computing or networking or, or auto. And so I think we have to make, make that distinction. Um, as we look to Micron specifically, um, I think that they are going to be very disciplined in terms of their CapEx spending um, and OpEx controls. So they indicated they're gonna actually cut CapEx next year. They're gonna contain OpEx. Um, and so the chances of them burning through cash, going negative free cash flow is very low. And so the book value per share is about $45, $46 per share. And so if, as long as the book value per share stays in that range, the downside is limited to about $45 in our view. And if they can yeah. navigate through this, then we can see more upside. But that's kind of keeping us on the buy side of the equation as it relates to Micron. Yeah, well, we've been talking about companies that have been and through and seen cycles, and Micron certainly is uh, one of those. Raj, appreciate it very much. Have a good weekend, thanks. You too, thank you. Sticking with chips, we're going to shift from Micron to Intel. The company indefinitely delaying its plans for a $20 billion plant in Ohio over the failure in Congress to pass the CHIPS Act. Scott Cohen is in New Albany, Ohio, as we get ready as well, Scott, for the reveal of CNBC's annual top state study. Scott. Yeah, that's right. That study about a week and a half away, Deidre. And, you know, this was going to be the big story. It still is the big story of, of top states this year. The effort to rebuild the American supply chain, particularly in semiconductors. And imagine this was going to be a, a big part of that, a huge plant, the biggest in the world uh, in New Albany, east of Columbus. Well, it looks like we're going to have to keep imagining that for a little and maybe a lot longer. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, speaking with us exclusively, has big plans for Intel. I truly believe that this is the Midwest time. I, I believe it's Ohio's time. So does the president of the Ohio State University, just 20 miles from Intel's site. It's something that what we've recognized, we're, we're creating a, a network, a Midwest research semiconductor network. Intel calls it Silicon Heartland, transforming what used to be the Rust Belt. But now it's all on hold. The groundbreaking scheduled for next month delayed indefinitely. Intel's CEO on CNBC this week. The idea of delaying a ceremonial announcement, you know, this sucks. At issue, the delay in Congress passing the CHIPS Act, including $52 billion in aid to the U.S. semiconductor industry. Intel also stands to pick up $2 billion in incentives from Ohio. Is it right for a company that made $20 billion in profits last year to be holding everyone hostage over incentives? I don't think they're holding anybody hostage. When we won, uh, they told us we're coming. But all the way through, they told us, if the CHIP Act passes, we will accelerate extremely fast. Indeed, Intel says it is still committed to this site in Ohio, but the CHIPS Act is the difference between a $20 billion investment over several years and $100 billion much faster. They, I don't think, want to be in a position where they would uh, say to Congress we're breaking ground and uh, Congress still hadn't passed the CHIP Act. 
Indeed, DeWine told us that Intel is still conducting job fairs here. They are still meeting with homeowners, but Intel does not want to make it look like anything is going on here. They've actually kept us away from their construction site as they try to uh, pressure Congress to pass what Pat Gelsinger, the CEO, calls a perfect piece of legislation. Deidre? Scott Cohen, thank you very much. And after the break, the so-called J.P. Morgan of crypto looks to make another acquisition. The details are up next. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Let's get a gut check on some of the biggest NASDAQ losers from the first half. No surprise that Netflix leads the pack, down 70% year-to-date, seeing no relief as uh, post-pandemic headwinds and more competition in the streaming space drags the stock lower. A couple of other familiar faces making the list six months into the year. PayPal plunging amid the broader decline that hits fintech. DocuSign down more than 60% on the year, down even further on the heels of that brutal Q1 earning, earnings for, and uh, former CEO Dan Springer stepping down, D. It has been uh, one hit after another when it comes to the NAS. Yeah, it absolutely has. And yesterday, Kate Rooney reporting that FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried are nearing a deal to buy crypto lender BlockFi. Kate Rooney with us more. Great scoop, Kate. Thanks, uh, tell us more about it. Yeah, so really interesting, Dee. This is according to three sources familiar with the FTX BlockFi deal. I was told by one source with knowledge of the deal that the price could be as low as $25 million. A separate source inside the deal telling me last night it could be closer to $50 million at the end of the, uh, end of the day. Another pathway FTX might consider is buying options to ex- exercise at a later date at that price. Either way, it would be a fraction of BlockFi's last uh, private valuation of $4.8 billion. Remember Sam Bankman-Fried and his company is also extending a $250 million line of credit to BlockFi. So unclear how that would be accounted for in a deal. Sources do expect it, though, to be signed before the holiday weekend. The CEO of BlockFi, though, Pushing back on that $25 million number in a tweet, we got no official comment from BlockFi or FTX on this. I'm also told multiple offers were on the table. The company has raised almost a billion dollars in VC funding that equity. I'm told by one investor is now essentially wiped out. They're writing off the value of BlockFi as an investment, as a loss right now. FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried has really been seen as the backstop in the crypto space. He provided a $500 million loan to another lender Voyager through his company Alameda Research. A fire sale here, though, latest sign of the fallout 
from all of these liquidations we've seen in crypto, D. Yeah, he's been making a lot of moves um, with a lot of capital. Kate, yeah. thank you very much. And like I said, really great scoop. Let's stay on FTX and Sam Bankman's Fried's efforts to help the crypto industry. Joining us now, Telstra Ventures' Yash Patel, who is an investor in FTX. Yash, it's great to have you on the program. What do you make of SBF's role in all of this? Um, does he have to do this essentially to stem contagion? And is this what you expected your investment to be used for? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and thanks for having me on again. You know, I think it's um, important to step back and actually look at the types of investments he's making, right? So some of these debt deals are very different from sort of equity investments versus M&A deals, um, and there's different reasons for each one of those deals, right? And so, you know, as, as, as an example, sort of the line of credit um, in many cases is, is more of a defensive move, um, you know, in many ways to inject confidence into the ecosystem, not in not only in terms of injecting liquidity, but you know, SBF is seen as a um, as a as a big figure in this space, and so injecting confidence with consumers, ensuring that you know they have confidence that their wallets, um, you know, are, are are you know still able to be withdrawn in terms of uh, you know their crypto assets. That's important. On the equity side, you know, FTX has a two billion dollar venture fund, right? So on that side, they they could get more offensive in terms of investing in kind of areas that are in the crypto space or crypto adjacent, like mobile gaming, esports, et cetera. And on the M&A side, right now, it, you know, in general, not just for FTX, but the whole industry has seen very depressed valuations. And so you can kind of pick up some really interesting assets uh, that can really grow your business, whether it's new customer accounts, um, new monthly active wallets uh, that can help you kind of cross sell or upsell your existing products. Or, or even, you know, kind of new geographic areas, uh, you know, where you see a yep. lot of crypto enthusiasts. So, Yash, you're saying that he could even be more offensive. But I was going to ask you, how is FTX in the first place in the position to make all of these investments? It's raised $2 billion to date. That is a lot. But considering how much cash I would imagine you need on hand when you're a market maker in the crypto space and the pace of his investments, where is all of this money coming from? Yeah, look, I sort of distinguish between two two entities. One is FTX, and the other is Alameda Research, which is basically a, a quant trading firm that Sam runs and, and kind of controls. Um, and then the other is that you know many of these um, exchanges are are highly profitable and have been growing very fast uh, over the past uh, couple of years. And so they've got their own healthy, strong balance sheets and are able to get more offensive and. You know, whether some of these guys decide to, you know, maybe slightly dilute themselves and raise future rounds of capital to get offensive, um, you know, that's still TBD. But, you know, I think it's going to be a combination of balance sheet capital as well as, um, you know, sort of uh, other uh, entities that are affiliated with FTX and, and kind of others in the ecosystem, as well as um, encouraging other kind of crypto players to also kind of invest and support some of these struggling players. So I don't think it's one man or one company that is going to save this whole ecosystem from any potential systemic issues. I really think um, this is about injecting confidence and getting you know everyone kind of on board. And, and the crypto space has always been very friendly, collaborative, unlike the traditional tech kind of ecosystem where people tend to be quite competitive. So you know people invest in competitors all the time. And I fully expect others to get on board with sort of a consortium of the willing, I'll kind of say, uh, to really, um, you know, prop up any potential um, instability that may, you know, still still come, right? There's still a lot of, you know, tier two or tier three exchanges. It's always uh, friendly and collaborative. Is that what you said yeah, in the crypto space? 
in the crypto space relative to the to this to the Silicon Valley tech ecosystem where competitors would never invest in each other. Um, in this space, you see party rounds all the time with Coinbase, Binance, FTX, Circle. They've all got their own corporate venture arms. And you know, they've been investing alongside the traditional venture uh, financial investors, the Andreessen Horowitz's, the paradigms of the world, uh, you know, for years now. And that is very different than sort of what we see where you know, in the traditional, you know, kind of tech ecosystem, you know, you would you would have a lot of issues, a lot of conflicts of interest with multiple funds investing in multiple kind of competitors in a, in a space. We're in the early days. Um, you've got to remember this. This kind of reminds me of the dot com kind of the early Internet, late 90s. Uh, you, you do need to kind of um, expect volatility. And I think people in the crypto space, a lot of these venture funds um, have that more collaborative uh, outlook rather than sort of sharp elbowed, you know, hey, it's in it for me. There's not a winner take all dynamic okay. just yet. I, I am seeing the elbows come out, though, Yash, especially as we undergo this uh, crypto winter. So I don't know if that, how long that'll last, but point taken. Yash, thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you, guys. Let's get a news update this morning with our Eamon Javers. Hey, Eamon. Good morning, Carl. Well, the U.S. economy may already be in a recession. The Atlanta Fed's GDP Now gauge, designed to give a real-time reading on the economy, it recently turned negative and now shows second quarter output shrinking by 1%. GDP fell by 1.6% in the first quarter. So if the Atlanta Fed's number accurately reflects what the government officially reports later this month, well, then we'd have two consecutive quarterly contractions, and that is the generally accepted informal definition of a recession. Now, shares of Kohl's are plunging 21% today after the retailer gave up on its efforts to sell itself to vitamin shop owner, franchise group, or really to anyone else. The company says the economy and the retail environment have gotten even worse since it began seeking bids, making it impossible to do a deal. And General Motors says it's having so much trouble getting semiconductors and other parts, it has 95,000 vehicles partially built and waiting to be finished. That's, a, that's contributing to a 15% sales drop in the second quarter. But that wasn't as bad as Wall Street had expected. The stock now up less than 1%. Carl, 95,000 unfinished vehicles sitting there. Back over to you. Uh, we really see where that, uh, that chip shortage is, is biting. Eamon, thank you. you uh, this drop in consumer confidence and the slowdown in ad spend is a big theme of the week. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a former Google exec on what it might mean for names like Alphabet, Meta, Snap, and Twitter when Tech Check returns. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Turning back to Meta, taking a closer look at its main revenue source, and of course that is digital ad spend. It's been shrinking and everyone's taking notice. Most recently, JMP Securities cuts their target for the Facebook parent as well as for Alphabet. Insider Intelligence notes that the company's combined share of digital ad dollars is expected to fall below 50% uh, by next year. Google's former SVP of ads and commerce, Sridhar Ramaswamy, joins us this morning. Sridhar currently serves as a venture partner at Greylock and co-founder and CEO of Neva, an ad-free search engine. Sridhar, it's great to have you. Appreciate your guidance on a, a tough question right now for the market because um, there's differences across the ad space given different ecosystems. There's the targeting issue, the difference between digital and television. But your main point appears to be that the macro is, is unequivocal right now. Macro is pretty hard. Uh, I think it's 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 a it's an unfortunate kind of double wallop. Uh, obviously, they got hit uh, big when COVID came along. Last year was a bumper year, and now I think with the recession looming, uh, ad spend is going to be down again, and their growth rates are going to be down. I mean, digital growth rates are still very healthy, uh, but they're going to come down somewhat. And your broader point is that it's not going to be limited to say uh, individual categories. It's not a it's not a travel and leisure. A dynamic, for example? Unlike in 2020, this is going to be across the board. Uh, but there will be differences. Uh, you know, different advertisers, depending on their level of sophistication, are going to take a hard look at what's working. I expect that the smaller ad platforms, you know, the, the, the Twitters, the Pinterest, the Snaps, they tend to get affected a little bit more because their volumes are not as high. The proof is not quite as une unequivocal that they're going to be effective. And so advertisers often uh, often will look there. The smarter ones, by the way, are not going to turn things off. They're going to look at spend and go, well, I can, I can get 60, 70% of the volume that I am getting for a 50% reduction in these campaigns. So different people are going to react differently. But I do think that the smaller players will be affected more, but all of them are going to be affected in a pretty big way. Right. So the smaller f uh, players are going to be affected more, Sridhar, but uh, Google is seen by many as sort of the most insulated or less vulnerable to these macro factors. And certainly we haven't heard any commentary from the company about pulling back in terms of spending or hiring. Do you think that that is in the cards in the second half of this year? I mean, they are not as aggressive in hiring. They're not as aggressive in the kind of offers that they make. You know, it's a very smart team. So they are, uh, they're going to adjust. Um, but I think this recession will come after everyone. And, uh, and so definitely there's going to be drop in spends there. And as you folks know, advertising, especially yes. search advertising, uh, is the biggest cash cow that Google has. It'll affect them. Absolutely. It's fascinating, Sridhar, that you were the former SVP of ads and commerce at Google, and now you are CEO of an ad-free search engine. Explain that a little bit, why you think there's space for that kind of competition, what you learned at Google that sort of made you think that this is needed or wanted among consumers. I mean, first of all, competition is a good thing. It forces everybody to step up and do better. And from that perspective, I think of Neva as a natural complement. Uh, I started Neva because I thought it was really important to go back to the basics of how the internet should work for all of us. I think all of us are sort of like a, a little bit uh, uh, numb to how much our data is getting exploited. So we wanted to go back, create a very simple service. Uh, we are paid by customers and customers only. But we also have a freemium product. It's absolutely noticed for folks to try Neva. And our bet is genuinely that we can create a better product over the long term. 
And this is where like tech scale is actually going to help us. The more people we get, the more we are able to invest back into the into the business. So I think of products like uh, Neva or Proton Mail as interesting counterpoints to the current ad-dominated ethos of the internet. I wonder, Shreeder, finally, whether or not some of these players who have the ability to offset this weakness with subscriptions, how, how powerful a lever is that right now? It's a slow burn for people like Google. You know, uh, something like $100 million in subscription revenue really doesn't count for very much. It's for the very patient. So I don't think of subscriptions for these folks as any kind of immediate panacea. Um, but they are long-term bets that they can choose to make. I don't think it's anything uh, anything that's going to have a meaningful effect in the near term. Yeah, we've certainly already been through a wave of subscription fatigue. And we'll see how much the that's consumer right. can right. stand. Uh, a lot of interesting macro factors headed our way, Shreeder. Hope you'll come back. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carl. Thank you, Deirdre. As we had to break, we want to get a quick check on the intraday action for the NASDAQ. Currently down about one-tenth of a percent on this quiet Friday ahead of the holiday weekend. More tech check on the other side of this break. Despite valuations falling, private equity deals have fallen off a cliff with interest rates and the cost of debt going up. Our Leslie Pickers with us and has a look at the impact for some of these publicly traded private equity firms, LP. Yeah, Carl, you'd think it'd be a really good environment for deal making, but we've actually seen buyout volume cut in half this year thanks to an onslaught of macro factors. During the first half of the year, there were a little more than 2,000 deals signed. According to Prequin, that's less than half the 4,700 from the same period in 2021. Aggregate deal value showing a similar picture with $208 billion worth of deals in 2022 so far compared with $471 billion worth last year. Volume held relatively steady during the first quarter. It was the second quarter that saw the big drop-off thanks to concerns surrounding geopolitics, volatility, higher inflation, costlier debt. This is part of the reason why we've seen sizable declines in publicly traded private equity firms, especially those with more traditional buyout exposure as opposed to other alternative asset classes like credit and real estate. And overall jitters surrounding less deal activity will likely play a role in bank earnings in a few weeks as P.E. has become an increasingly large part of the overall M&A environment. Several banks have shared guidance that they expect a large drop-off in investment banking revenue for Q2, although last year's comps are pretty difficult ones in such a boom year. Exits, though, too, have become more challenging with the IPO market effectively shut in addition to a relatively chilled market for just outright sales of assets. Industry experts, though, and here's the, here's the bright spot, say that eventually valuations will stabilize. The value-oriented buyout shops are hoping they do at these lower levels, and they have plenty of capital to deploy with $975 billion worth of dry powder in the U.S., alone, according to PwC. Additionally, the demise of the SPAC market has evaporated some competition for the buyout community, which has been a bit challenging in recent years, although some of the private equity firms have also created their own SPACs. So it's just been an all-around competitive environment. So hopefully they'll, they'll get a little uh, little reprieve. Yeah, we've seen some, some more SPAC activity on the downside today. Mm -hmm. I wonder, one thing I've heard is that, although everything you're describing sounds like a classic cycle, we've heard all this before, um, the one thing that's different is the nature of remote work, the ways in which startups, companies house their labor, maybe save a bundle on real estate. Would that be a big difference for PE? 
it would be in the sense that that real estate that you mentioned is just one less cost that they have to consider. However, um, PE often is involved, at least traditionally, in a lot of the, the industrial type assets. That's become an increasingly smaller part of the pie as they get more and more involved in, in kind of tech buyouts. Um, and so that in and of itself could make it potentially more monetize, monetizable as they look for different ways to cut costs and consolidate. Absolutely. And Leslie, uh, perhaps, I don't know, actually, tell me, it's something different this time around the regulatory landscape as well. You've got Lena Khan over at the FTC and Jonathan Cantor at the DOJ. Could that potentially scare off some deal activity? It could potentially scare off some competition um, because if you look at strategic to strategic sales, that could face more competition from the FTC, whereas private equity historically haven't it hasn't faced that same kind of regulatory scrutiny, at least as it pertains to anti-competitive measures, because they're sponsors as opposed to strategic. So unless they have a really, really big asset that they plan to merge and extract certain synergies, they don't get as much attention uh, from the FTC or from regulators as, say, a strategic would. Uh, it, it, it all makes sense, although we know there's surprises headed our way. We just don't know what they are. Uh, yes. Leslie, uh, great setup uh, for maybe the back half of the year. Leslie Picker. And as we had a break, we also want to get a check on Apple. JPM reiterating its overweight rating, saying they're not as worried about Apple's prospects as others are. Price target, $200. Shares flat this morning. Stay with us. Got check on a space that we've been watching closely this week, and that is data centers. Wells Fargo pulling no punches, calling investor Jim Chanos' newest short misguided in a new note this morning, writing they don't think he understands the market well enough. Wells arguing that his short call is nothing more than a temporary distraction. Ouch. That hyperscalers are outsourcing more, not less, and that the customer base is broader than Chanos realizes for companies like Digital Realty and Equinix. One thing to note, the information reported just about an hour ago that Microsoft is struggling to make enough cloud servers available and hasn't publicly acknowledged the extent of that problem, suggesting that demand for third-party data centers will remain strong. Now, I asked Chanos for comment on Twitter, and he responded, so with the hyperscalers capacity constrained and thus forced to keep using old data centers for current capacity needs, the data centers are still showing declining rents and occupancy. What do you think happens, he asks, when Microsoft can get enough servers to build more centers? This <laughs> is a battle we continue to watch, Carl. We should note, though, um, Chanos perhaps doesn't have the same impact or relevance as he used to have. He has struggled to raise money in this environment. I believe he manages around $500 million now, down from the billions before. But then again, we are also heading into more of a short seller's market here, one that we haven't been on in a while. Uh, Jim has seen a, 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 his share of those cycles. There's no, ba no doubt about it, D. Coming up after the break, Elon Musk and Tesla uh, being hit with yet another lawsuit. Got some details when Tech Check is back in a moment. Tesla being hit by a new lawsuit alleging racial abuse against black workers. Phil LeBeau is with us and has more on this story. Phil. Deirdre, it's waiting. we're waiting to see if Tesla has a comment regarding this lawsuit. We've reached out to the company, have not heard anything. Let me bring you up to speed in terms of what we know about this suit. It was filed in a California state court by 15 former and current employees. Their complaint, racial abuse and harassment. This is not the first time that we've seen a lawsuit filed against Tesla accusing the company of having a, an environment where racism or discrimination is allowed. In fact, earlier this week, a federal judge ordered a new trial regarding a discrimination suit. We're not going to get into all the details there, but this is something that has been 
It's been happening here now for more than a year uh, that uh, Tesla has been dealing with these complaints. This suit comes a day before Tesla uh, finished the quarter. And they finished the quarter, which means do we get Q2 deliveries? When will we get them? Unlikely we get them today. I think it's more likely that we will see them tomorrow. Remember, most analysts have drawn down their expectations for the second quarter. Uh, they're not going to hit the 310,000 delivered in the first quarter because of the lockdown with COVID restrictions in China. That severely crimped production in that country. More likely we see something in the range of 250,000 vehicles. The other thing that will be interesting, Deirdre, what we might learn about production in Austin and in Germany. How much do they go into detail about that, or do they save that for the Q2 earnings report? Yeah, we know you'll be watching and bringing it to us. Thank you, Philibo. And if you missed part of the show, uh, have a long weekend coming up. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Tech Check is back in just a moment. In the latest episode of our digital series, Binge, I sat down with Nikki Toscano, the showrunner and executive producer of The Offer on Paramount+. Plus. The series is based on the behind-the-scenes drama that went into making The Godfather. We talked about the streaming wars and how heavily studios rely on algos to drive more content decisions. Algorithms. And there's a plot in Barry this this season where one of the actors is a, she's an actress and she thinks she has a, a green light at a studio or a streamer and the algorithm didn't like it and her show gets canceled. Right. To what degree do do streaming chiefs and studio chiefs rely on the machine? I mean, and, and is it ever a deal breaker? I think it's one more component that goes into decision making. I think that some of the streamers are focused on that more than others. There's some that I think that are largely motivated by creative content that they think people are going to watch. Like superhero sh- yeah, sorry, <laughs> anybody, anybody that's in tights, I think it's harder and harder um, unless you're on a platform like FX to do like a small intimate character drama, which they do very well. Dee, we had a blast uh, talking, and the full interview is up right now at cnbc.com slash binge. And another offer you can't refuse, a live stream of the full uncut conversation will air at 12.45 p.m. Eastern on Tech Check's Twitter account. You know, it's kind of a, a relief sometimes, Dee, to talk about issues that aren't uh, completely uh, important to the global macro picture, uh, things we used to talk about before COVID, but you know, still important to companies that are relying on subgrowth uh, for their, their financial future. Absolutely. That conversation that you had about the algorithm and how much that drives content is so important right now, especially when you look at a Netflix, which, you know, a lot of folks are saying that their content maybe isn't as good as an HBO Max. They don't have as many hits. And does that happen because it's relying on the algo? Right. And how do they adjust? Um, We'll get jobs uh, next week. It's going to be a busy one, but enjoy the long weekend. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.